he has a brokerage that has over 100 agents, has 10 full-time staff members, and he's rocking and rolling. So it's just something that is a reminder to all of us that if we want something, let's go get it. Let's not wait. Let's not complain. Let's just go make it happen. If you're a passive investor wanting to learn more about questions to ask sponsors in order to qualify the opportunities, in order to qualify the sponsor, in order to qualify the market that the property is in, then go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. My team and I created this site just for you so that there is a free resource available to you to learn about the questions to ask, the things to think through prior to investing in deals. So go to besteverpassiveinvestor.com. It's a free resource for you that was made just for you. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We got follow along Friday today with us, Theo Hicks. And we are going to be talking about Five lessons that I learned from the interviews I did last Thursday. So as a reminder, I do all my podcast interviews for the show on Thursdays. I interview around eight or nine people every Thursday, and I learn a whole lot during that process. So the purpose of this conversation is to talk about some things I learned and Perhaps that will be some things that will help you out as you go along in your real estate endeavors. So Theo Hicks, well, you just want me to kick it off? I want you to jump right in, Joe. Let's do it. All right, cool. So number one, I have a meetup that I host in Cincinnati, and I interviewed a local Cincinnati investor. His name's Gaston Turin. And by the way, if you ever want to attend the Cincinnati meetup, would love to have you. Go to bestevercincy.com, bestevercincy.com, and you'll see when we have them. It is the last Tuesday of every month. We had a gentleman from Miami, Florida join us this month, and usually we have some out-of-state people. So if you do travel from out-of-state, then please make it a point to say hi to me. I want to acknowledge your travels for sure. So anyway, we have a meetup I host every month in Cincinnati. And during that meetup, I interview someone, I record it. So you'll hear Gaston's interview I did with him sometime in the future on this podcast. You can probably see it a little bit in advance on our YouTube channel. But he's very impressive in that he owns 240 units. And it's just him and his wife who own them. He has not syndicated before. And he has worked incredibly hard to get to this point. And I'll give a specific example. He started with a duplex or a fourplex, but then the next one was an 18 unit. And it was an 18 unit that was completely distressed. He had a full-time job at the time. He has since left his full-time job as an accountant. And he was working 40 hours a week as an accountant. And he bought this property that was very distressed property, 18 units. What do you think the purchase price was? Let's say a million dollars. 
<laughs> You've been living in Tampa too long. $190,000. For an 18 unit? <laughs> yeah. That's 10 grand a unit, right? I, I, <laughs> a little I, over 10 grand. Wow. Yes, yes. Could you imagine? Yeah, it's in Price Hill, an area of Cincinnati that is rough. So I'll share a little bit more of a story, and then I'll tell you the lesson learned here in a second. So he bought this 18 unit for 190000 got a loan from his mom, also had his own money. He saved up him and his wife, bought it, turned it around, and ended up appraising. He put in, I think, like thirty, forty thousand, not including his labor, because he does all the work himself initially it was, and ended up appraising for like three hundred and sixty K or something and got basically all his money back out, plus now owns it with no money of his own in the deal. And it's stabilized. And he's been doing this over and over for the past five years or so. And he's continued to scale and scale. His largest purchase has been a, I want to say a a 65, 68 unit. And that was one where I think he was all in for 550,000. And he got it appraised for 1.2 or 1.3 million. And he was able to get a check for $790,000 within two years. And that was from a refinance. (laughs) I mean, mean, just doing a phenomenal job, but very hands-on, highly recommend listening to the interview. Well, the lesson that I learned, other than it just being an inspiring story, is that he buys basically the worst properties in the worst areas, which all of the books I've read and from my personal experiences, you don't want to buy the worst property in the worst area. You would want to buy the worst property in the best area, but he doesn't care about the area. He's focused on what type of value can he add and he gets his hands dirty, literally. He comes to our monthly meetups very dirty. <laughs> he's got, he's never, he's never got a clean outfit on because he's always coming from the job. So this guy is getting after it, but 240 units in about five years or so time to show for it that he owns and he has built it from ground zero. So just very inspiring. And it goes to show that for any one piece of advice someone gives, there's always going to be something to counterbalance that piece of advice. Hey, Theo, buy the worst property in the best area. Do it all day long. Well, hey, Theo, actually, this gentleman in Cincinnati is buying the worst property in the worst area. <laughs> and he's doing well because he's getting at a very good discount, but he's still got some challenges with the type of area he's buying in, and then he just makes some cash flow. So it was eye-opening, and I thought I wanted to share that as lesson number one. Yeah, I feel like it's, as you mentioned, by the worst property in the worst area, best property in the worst area, best property in the best area. It, it really just kind of all depends on you, your goals, and what you're good at, right? Because this guy probably couldn't, it's possible, but he would have a lot more trouble buying the worst property in the worst area if he wasn't doing the renovations himself or getting his hands dirty. Or at least he wouldn't have been able to scale as fast as he has been able to because obviously maybe half of the renovation costs are labor. So he's reducing the renovation costs in half, maybe more, maybe less. That's one thing. And then another thing too, it also reminds me of that concept we talked about. I can't remember when we talked about it, but it's identifying the types of properties people don't want and then figure out how to solve that problem. And the example being 
the one individual who was buying the properties with the foundation issues. And he realized that if he found someone that could resolve the issue a lot less expensively than he had first realized, and that what most people expect. So he asked every single broker to send him any property that has foundation issues because he knows he can go in there and fix it. And obviously he's buying the property at a significant discount because of the issue. So the gas on strategy kind of reminds me of that where most people aren't buying the worst property in the worst area, but he's found a way to make it work. Yeah, because most people aren't willing to do that type of work or aren't willing to teach themselves how to learn how to do that type of work and then do that type of work because he's an accountant by trade. So he didn't have, not to say that no accountant's handy, because I'm sure there are a lot of accountants who are handy, but if you're an accountant, you probably have spent a lot of time focusing on other things than learning construction. Mm. So he said he had to teach himself how to do all that stuff. And then he just went from there. But I agree, there are two variables there that need to be in play for this strategy to work. One is you self-manage. Two is you do the work yourself with a crew that you've got, that you've cobbled together, and the labor costs will not be a thing or as much of a thing because that's where a lot of the costs go. So. Yeah, some of the numbers he was given with the renovations he's doing and on the turns and stuff, it was crazy low, but you know, factor in labor, then that's how it pencils out. Okay, number two is Louis Leva. He's the CEO of Culture Estate in Scotch Plains, New Jersey. He reminded me that it's important to put in the work and give people solutions to the problems they have before asking for anything. And I remember interviewing someone a while ago and they said, never, ever, 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 ever ask for anything until you have given something to someone. So never ask someone for anything until you've given them something. And that's his mantra that he goes by. And Louis Leva, he talked about when he started out, he would talk to real estate investors and he would ask them, hey, what type of portfolio do you got? And they'd say, I got three single family homes, blah, 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 blah. And he'd say, oh, are you looking to sell anything anytime soon now? Probably not. But if I get the right offer, oh, what would the right offer be? I get like $200,000 on this home that I bought for 75000 I think Zillow says it's 160000 Well, if I got an offer for 200000 then I definitely sell. Oh, okay, well, if I find someone, you want me to help make that happen? And they'd say, well, yeah, of course, sure. So what Lewis would do is he'd go make that happen. He's a former barber and he was cutting hair and he realized that he wanted to do more. And he started in real estate in the way I just described. And he was wholesaling, he said, before he knew that he was actually wholesaling. He was just adding value to others and getting them the price they're looking for. And now he has a brokerage that has over 100 agents, has 10 full-time staff members, and he's rocking and rolling. So it's just something that is a reminder to all of us that if we want something, let's go get it. Let's not wait. Let's not complain. Let's just go make it happen. Yeah. And also realize that you're going to have to put in that work and might not see results for a while. I think the really good example of that would be anyone who's trying to start a thought leadership platform. And Joe, I know you can attest to this. You're starting a podcast and you're talking to your microphone, a camera, whatever. And in the beginning, no one's listening, but you act like people are listening. 
and it's going to get frustrating. But eventually, if you keep doing it consistently, and in this case, for real estate investing, providing actually good real estate investing advice, then people eventually come. But you can't be on your podcast asking people to listen and begging people to listen. Instead, you got to put the value out there first, and then the viewers will come. And obviously, that applies to really any type of real estate investment strategy that requires putting an effort, which is all of them. Yeah. It's a concept that applies to anything we do in life. And the concept is if you want to attract the right partners, then be attractive yourself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You want a good spouse, you want a good best friend, then be attractive to that potential spouse, to that potential best friend. You want a good business partner, then be attractive to that business partner. And how do you become attractive? Well, you become attractive when you have solutions. Mm -hmm. And it's obviously not as mechanical as that with personal relationships, but in business, it's a lot easier to think of it that way. But that concept is applicable to anything we do in life. We want something, we'll identify what it is and then be attractive to that. And then we can attract those types of partnerships, those types of relationships in our life. Couldn't agree more. Number three. This is an interview I did with a gentleman named Michael Beeman. I've interviewed him one other time on the podcast. So this episode's going to be a Situation Saturday, I believe. So those are booked out for a while. So this interview is not going to air for probably like 60 to 90 days. So here's something, just a little snackaroo from the episode. The situation was that he was on the way to the closing table, literally driving in his vehicle to the office where they are closing and he got a lender from his mortgage broker saying, uh, sorry, Michael, lender backed out. They won't give a reason why they're not funding the deal. <laughs> 62 unit deal and the lender backed out the day of closing. And we talk about in that conversation, what should you do if you had to do the situation over again, what would you do differently? And I won't get into all of it, but I will say that there are three things that if you find yourself in that situation that you need to have on your team in place, one is a broker who's representing the seller who trusts in you and knows that you're a serious buyer. So something funky came up with the lender, but the broker still has trust in you because that broker's going to need to talk to their client, the seller and make sure that they keep the seller in the transaction, number one. Number two is you're going to have to negotiate updated terms with the seller. 99.9% .9 of the sellers are going to want you to give them something in exchange for the delay. And ideally, it is just additional non-refundable earnest money because you're going to buy it anyway. So no sweat off your back. It's just more cash out of pocket up front. But when you buy it, who cares? It's the same amount of cash. But most likely they're going to ask for something else like an increase in purchase price or, oh, well, that really messes up my tax situation. Now I'm about to pay more taxes for, they'll make up some reason. So now this costs me $50,000. You know what? I'll split the difference with you give me an extra 25,000 on top of the deal, whatever it is. So just be prepared to negotiate 
with the seller on updated terms. And ideally, you don't do anything. I mean, ideally, you don't have to give way on anything, but most likely you will have to give something up. And if you do, then I'd go with non-refundable earnest money. That way, it's a net zero effect to the deal itself since you're buying it anyway. And then the third is making sure you have, in this case, a better mortgage broker. So if you find yourself in this situation, make sure that you've built relationships leading up to this point where you have other mortgage brokers who you can go to and who would be reliable. So to be proactive as best ever listeners, as Joe and Theo, for us to all be proactive so that we can attempt to avoid this type of situation where the lender backs out the day of, have these three things ready. Make sure you've built enough trust and credibility with the seller's broker, number one. Number two, just be prepared to negotiate terms and know what terms you need to negotiate should something unexpected take place. That way, when something unexpected does take place, you're not caught off guard, scrambling, agree to something that you shouldn't have agreed to, and now the deal's much worse off than it was before, even if you close. And then number three, make sure you have a backup mortgage broker. And then the fourth thing I'd say is, and what he said is, he needed to have better communication with the lender throughout the process. So make sure that we're communicating with the lender throughout the process because he hadn't heard anything from the lender. He just figured, hey, they're not saying anything. Everything must be perfect. Uh-uh. Lenders require your social security number and they require, I was going to say something funny and then I just came up with social security number. I was going to say something like your firstborn or something. Obviously they need your social security number. Lenders require so much information from you. If you've ever got approved for a multifamily property, you know what I'm talking about. So if there are crickets leading up to the closing, something is wrong. So make sure that you're communicating with them. And I did an interview with Mark Massier, M-A-R-K-M-A-S-C-I-A. If you Google, actually, I'll tell you the episode number that I did with him. It is episode 599. And similar thing happened to Mark, episode 599. You can listen to that and listen to what he did. And that was actually on a very large deal. And the story didn't end so well with Mark Massier on that deal, episode 599. So those are some things that you can proactively address to mitigate the risk of that happening. Yeah, the case of mortgage brokers, private management companies, no news is not necessarily good news. <laughs> Whereas that's sometimes the case for other things. If you're not hearing from them, then something's probably going on. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole lot going on and you got to stick your nose in there. And one common theme with these two interviews on a lender backing out the day of closing is they were untested relationships. If memory serves me correctly, Mark Massier said he was testing out a new lender through, I believe, a new mortgage broker that was giving him that lender. And then in Michael Beeman's case, his mortgage broker was not good and hooked him up with the lender that was flaky. So relationships go a long way in this business and make sure that especially for your first handful of properties when a loss could be catastrophic. Make sure that you're going with a mortgage broker and the lender that other people you know have gone with and closed on because that's going to decrease the chances of something like this happening to you. Number four, Corey Boatwright. His interview was very insightful from two standpoints. And I'll touch on this briefly and then I recommend just listening to the Corey Boatwright interview. One standpoint, 
he's a very successful residential investor. He sends out, I think, like 60,000 direct mail pieces a month and does direct response marketing very, very well for residential. Well, he is moving into 75 to 150 unit properties. And he said there's an opportunity for direct response marketing to owners of 75 units to 150 units. So he goes through the whole process for what he's doing to get deals with direct response marketing. And he gave a lot of resources to use. He's very specific about stuff. So I recommend listening to that interview. So that's one thing. Second thing though, is more of the meat of this conversation that you and I are having, Theo. And that is, he suggested doing a $10,000 an hour activity exercise. And what the exercise is, is for a week, write down and track what you do professionally every hour. So every time you're professionally working or every time you're working, then write down what you did that previous hour and just do it for a week and track it and identify at the end of the week what activities were $10 an hour activities, $100 an hour activities, $1,000 an hour activities, and $10,000 an hour activities. You may or may not have heard this type of exercise before. I think I had heard of it, but I haven't done it. And I still haven't done it. And you know what, Theo Hicks? I'm writing it down. When I write it down on my notepad, it gets done. So I'm going to do this $10,000 an hour exercise. And I'm going to do it in the month of June. I'm not going to commit to doing it this following week, but I will do it in the month of June. And I will report back in July and maybe in June, depending on when I do the exercise, my thoughts on it. But I know that's a valuable exercise to do. I know it's going to be a hassle, probably, because I work a lot of hours to write that down. But the outcome of the exercise, as most people are probably already picking up on, is to make sure we're doing $10,000 an hour activities. I think I could even add a zero to it and say $100,000 activities with the stuff I'm doing, but I'll stick to $10,000 an hour activities and I'll kind of see how things go. But Mark Cuban probably would scoff at $10,000 an hour, right? Like Mark Cuban, I start at $10,000 an hour and that's the stuff I want to delegate out. So it depends on where we're at on the scale, but I think regardless, it's going to be an important exercise to do and it just helps be more intentional about how we spend our time and how we have our team structured. Yeah, I heard it. maybe it was 100 and 1,000 or 10 and 100. I've never heard it go up to 10,000, but as you said, it's all relative based off of where you're currently at right now. So someone who's just starting probably won't have any $10,000 activities. Maybe they have one. So obviously don't get discouraged if you perform this activity when you're first starting out and all of your activities are $100 an hour because you got to start somewhere. Yeah, and I think it also could be the potential of $10,000. So if you're just starting out, I mean, everyone has the potential to make $10,000 an hour. So if you're looking for deals and you spend 30 minutes talking to a seller and then they end up saying, yes, you can put my house under contract and you can wholesale it for $20,000 spread. They don't say it exactly like that, but that's basically the outcome. But it doesn't work out for whatever reason. Then there was a potential of it. So you keep doing that potential activity. I don't know. I'm speaking from a point of view of inexperience with this exercise. So let me do the exercise and then I'll have more crystallized thoughts. And then lastly, 
The concept of infinite banking. <laughs> yeah, I saw now, that in the notes. <laughs> I say it the way I said it because it seems too good to be true and I don't think it is too good to be true because I'm doing it. I put $100,000 in a whole life policy with the gentleman who I interviewed. His name's Gary Pinkerton. And he was recommended to me from one of my investors who I trust implicitly. And Gary is excellent at being very clear about how the process works. And I wanted to do an episode with it in more detail after I'd actually done it. That way I could speak from a point of experience and I'm not just talking conceptually. So I make zero money, zero, zero, zero money from interviewing him and talking about infinite banking. Just so everyone knows, I'm just sharing a concept that I found interesting enough. I read a couple books on it and then I got introduced to Gary through one of my investors and I was like, you know what? This just seems to make sense. So the lesson there was it reinforced in my mind why I did this infinite banking with him. Basically, high level, I'm not going to get into the details. You can listen to the interview I do with Gary Pinkerton, or you can reach out to him. Just search Gary Pinkerton. I'm sure infinite banking or whole life or something, I'm sure it'll come up if you can't wait for the interview. It allows me to make a return on my money, grow it tax-free. I have full access to 95% of that money. And by the way, when I die, I have death benefit coverage to my family and it's rather significant. So it's tough to beat. It's a complicated concept. And usually with stuff that sounds too good to be true, it usually is. I have run this by some smart people I know and they seem to be like, yeah, this makes sense. So anyway, if you want to look more into infinite banking, I'm pretty sure I recommend it. (laughs) And I recommend at least educating yourself on it more and talking to other people who are very smart financially, but have no vested interest in you doing or not doing it and just getting their thoughts because we're all going to die and it's good to have our loved ones taken care of or you donate it wherever. But then along the way, if you can make money tax-free, a return on your investments and borrow against that, it seems like a pretty good deal. Yeah, I remember I was in communication with someone about that a while back. I haven't pulled the trigger yet. Maybe I will someday. We'll see. Maybe I'll listen to the interview. Maybe I should talk to Gary instead. Because he said 95%. The one I was looking at was 75%, I think. It might have even been less than that. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. I think I lowballed it on 95% access day one. So as I mentioned, I have a $100,000 policy. And I think I have access to like 97, 98,000 wow. of it. Anyway, I recommend just educating yourself more about it. And then you decide what the heck you want to do with that concept. All right, good stuff. Move on to the trivia question. Yep. All right. Last week's trivia question was, the profession with the highest rate of owner-occupied home ownership is 90.4%. What is that profession? I remember Joe guessed real estate agents, which was second place. First place is farmers and ranchers. (laughs) (laughs) Farmers and ranchers. Obviously, they, yes. they live where they work. <laughs> they live where they work. Good one. I like that. Good question, Theo. All right. So I'm trying to avoid any questions that involve a number answer just because there's so many different numbers to choose from. So this one's, I don't think it's as good as last week's, but I think it's still an interesting question. I did not know the answer to, but I think Joe's going to get this. What state has the lowest percentage of housing units occupied by their owners? So the lowest owner-occupied homeownership percentage. What state, Joe? 
Well, Theo, I always like to set expectations low and then seed expectations. So if you say I'm going to get it and, and I don't get it, then everyone's disappointed, myself included. But if you say you may or may not get this, Joe, and then I get it, then I've exceeded expectations. My obvious thought is New York because of New York City being 7 million people or 12 million people. I think Manhattan's 7 million and New York City's 12 million, something like that. And most people rent. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go to New York. All righty. Well, anyone else who wants to answer that question, either leave it in the comment section of the YouTube video or email info at Joe Fairless. The first person to get it correct will receive a assigned copy of our first book. Highest percentage or total people? It's a percentage. Okay. Yeah. I'll probably stick with that. California is probably pretty good too in that category because it's so darn expensive to buy there, but I'll stick to New York. Okay. And then lastly, the best ever apartment syndication book review of the week. This week is from EBL Man. And I really enjoyed this review. I think you'll too, Joe. I bought the best ever apartment syndication book two times. <laughs> I read the first one about 25% of the way through and it was getting immense value from it. I was taking it to REIAs because I would read it beforehand and notice it started so many great conversations about syndication. After a few times, I began to take it to all the meetups I went to. This was great until I misplaced it. So now I'm here buying this book a second time. Honestly, I would carry this book around even if I didn't read it because of the instant value it adds to conversations. But this book is also a step-by-step guide on how to syndicate and how to do it well. Hey, that's cool. Well, I wish you didn't lose it. I wish that you didn't have to buy it twice, but you didn't have to buy it twice. You chose to buy it twice. That means that it was a lot of value to you. So thank you very much. And thank you for taking time to write that review. And best ever listeners, if you have read the best ever apartment syndication book, please leave a review and would love to feature you as a review of the week. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Hope you got a lot of value from our conversation and we'll talk to you tomorrow. If you're a passive investor and want to learn more about Ashcroft Capital, the company I co-founded with my business partner, Frank, and in particular want to learn more about our strategy and how we think about the opportunities that we purchase, go to ashcroftcapital.com and click the strategy button above and you'll be able to read through our thought process we use when we're purchasing multifamily properties. Are you ready to close more deals and officially seal your financial freedom? The Dwellin Show with Ola Dantis discloses the most innovative real estate investing strategies to kickstart your quest to financial freedom. Go listen at www.dwellyn.com forward slash show. That's dot com forward slash show.